0: I ask that you now turn your Bibles to the prophet Micah, chapter 5, with an emphasis on verse 2. We will begin reading it verse 1 through verse 6. Micah, chapter 5. Now, I actually preached this text a couple of years ago. But as I searched the scriptures and searched my heart, I said verse 2 of chapter 5 of Micah is exactly the text that I want to expound on this Sunday before Christmas, bringing to you thoughts old and new. Let's pray before reading. Our Father and our God, we humbly bow in your sacred presence and acknowledge that you are the true and the living God and that you have given to us this word, which is inerrant in the whole and in the part, so that we read truth when we turn to this book, for it is from your very hand. We praise you that the Holy Spirit, who has inspired this book, breathed it out, also enables your people to read the text as the Spirit illumines our hearts so that we may understand its content and apply it to living. But Father, as we know that you will do that faithfully for your people, you are the covenant God of your covenant people. We also know that there may be those in this worship service today who are strangers to grace. And how we do long to see others come to know the Savior that we know, And ask that you will bless that the worship service offered in your name would also be used of the Spirit of God to win souls to Christ. Hear us, Father, we ask for these great and wondrous truths with which we deal also are momentous for the souls of men and women and children for time and for eternity. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Micah chapter 5 beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with a rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Notice again verse 2 of Micah 5, "...but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days." Now, the times in which Micah the prophet prophesied were dangerous and dark times. Micah prophesied in an age that we might look at and say, had we lived there, we would have thought things were hopeless. Ahaz the king offered his children to the false god Moloch. As the children were offered, the drums would beat out the sound of the crying of the baby so the baby could not be heard and babies were offered to this false god, Moloch. Hezekiah, of course, was a reformer, but few followed his reforms from the heart. But a believing remnant, God always has a faithful people, a believing remnant found hope. God's people who tremble at His Word find their hope in the glorious gospel of Christ and the promises of His Word. And here is a message of hope within a book that pronounces judgment. Judgment. In the first eight verses of chapter 4, Micah prophesies of the triumph of Messiah's kingdom. And then in verses 9 through 13, he speaks of suffering and of exile, restoration, judgment upon Babylon. And then a new ruler would come. The Messiah would arrive. And then in chapter 5, verse 2. 750 years before Jesus' birth, the coming of Christ is foretold by the prophet Micah. It is an ancient message, bright with hope in a hopeless age. Let's first see, as we look at verse 2 of Micah 5, the place of Messiah's birth. The place of Messiah's birth. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Bethlehem, house of bread, Ephrata, fruitfulness. What a fitting name for Messiah's birthplace. For the birthplace of the Son of God, who is the bread of life for his people. He is born in the house of bread, who is the very food for our souls, Without Him, we are barren and fruitless. And so He is born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. Fruitfulness and abundance comes to us through Him. Now I ask you this question. On this Sunday before Christmas, can you say that your soul is filled with fruitfulness, that you long to know and serve the Lord God who is and who brought the Messiah into the world? Or do you say, as I examine my heart, My soul is barren of fruitfulness, and I do not know this bread of life. O my friend, by faith, bring your barren soul to him. Come to him who is born in the house of bread, who is born in Ephrata. But having seen the name of his birthplace, let's also consider together the history of his birthplace, because Bethlehem would have been dear to the heart of every Israelite because so much of redemptive history clustered there. Rachel died there in Bethlehem, giving birth to Benoni, oni son of my sorrow. But a greater man of sorrow would be born there than Rachel's child, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who would bear upon his own body our stripes, so that through his chastisement, we might have peace with God. Naomi was from Bethlehem. Naomi, whose whose husband died and she returned with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to this little place of Bethlehem. You remember the story. Call me not Naomi, pleasant, she said, but call me Mara, bitter. And yet, through her circumstances, one of the most remarkable instances of God's providence would be wrought. Through the union of Ruth and Boaz would come Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David, the kingly ancestor of Christ who was born in Bethlehem. Ruth is really a Christmas story after all. Why did God bring about the birth of the Savior in Bethlehem? The reason? Christ enters our history. He is David's greater son. He is the king. He rules. He reigns. And this is why Joseph and Mary must take the long journey to David's royal city. This is why the angel says to the shepherd, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David a Savior is born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Do you know this king? This one born in David's royal city? Do you know this ruler? Are you prepared for his next coming because you understand the significance of his first coming. Do you know this king? But also will you note with me the insignificance of his birthplace? Despite its place in God's plan to the world, Bethlehem was totally insignificant and altogether unimportant. Notice that the prophet says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... It is not even mentioned, this little town of Bethlehem. It is not even mentioned among the towns listed in Joshua. Over a hundred towns, as I recall, in Joshua, and it's not even mentioned one time. It's absent from the list of towns in Nehemiah chapter 11. It's not big enough to be seen as a municipal unit. It's not big enough to have a listing in the towns of the people of God. Now, I'm from Macon, Georgia. Try and see my parents around Christmas time. Usually I go up through uh, Forsyth, up to Jackson. You want some great barbecue? Jackson's the place. And That's saying a lot for Georgia. <laughs> so we go up through to Jackson. You can smell it as you come. Oh, my. You go through this place called Bowling Broke. Whoever heard of Bowling Broke? Bolingbroke, there's the sign, you enter in, I mean you enter in and pass, you don't know you've been there, but when you enter, there's the sign, 42 people and one old grump. <laughs> Even Bolingbroke is known for something, it has one old grump. Bethlehem, known for nothing in the eyes of the world, known for nothing, it is nowhere, where would most of us expect the Son of God to be born? Well, of course, in this day, Jerusalem or surely Rome. Or had it been today, it would, have been, it would have been London or it would have been Paris or New York City. That's the way we think. But no, the insignificance of his birthplace speaks of the lowliness of Christ's birth. His lowly birth was not, first of all, an example to us His birth was the beginning of his descent into hell, the beginning of his entering into his sufferings in our place. His birth points ahead to the terrible cost of the cross and the great love that would be shown wherewith he loved us in order to save us. And so there he is in a tiny village, no room in the inn, born in a stable. Do you see why there is a significant change? When we turn to Matthew's Gospel, and Matthew actually references this text. I want you to see it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 6. Matthew 2, 6. We read in verse 5, They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, so it is written by the prophet. And now Matthew quotes, but not quite, from Micah chapter 5. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler. Wait. Micah says, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, Matthew says, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Why the change? Why the difference? The reason is this. Because the Savior had come, because Jesus was born, because Christ transforms the small and insignificant into the great, because wherever and in whomever Christ dwells, there is greatness. We are small, we are insignificant as the world counts greatness, but every child of God is great in Him. Are you not in union with Him, believer? Do not His perfections define you? So we've seen the place of Messiah's birth, its name, its history, its significance. Ah, but next, see with me this great and grand theme, the providence of Messiah's birth. The providence of Messiah's birth. Now what do we mean by providence? God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, and all their actions. It's God's sovereign governing of his world. Caesar Augustus makes a decree, perhaps on a whim, and he says, take a census. Take a census of the world that is under my rule, and all who live elsewhere must travel to their birthplace to be registered. To this place spoken of in Micah chapter 5, to this little town of Bethlehem. Now, I like to tease you at Christmas time with this thought. Sure was lucky, huh? <laughs> lucky that Caesar made the decree. Lucky that he made it then and not earlier or maybe later. Lucky that Joseph and Mary must travel to Bethlehem. Lucky that they must go at the time when she's near giving birth. Lucky that she didn't give birth along the way, bouncing along the road. Luck? Luck? No, 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 we do not live in a chance universe. Never would you have had a savior without the governance of your sovereign God and his divine providence. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He moveth it whithersoever he will. It is God and his sovereignty who moves Augustus Caesar and then through Quirinius brings the census so that Jesus is born where God, 750 years prior, said he would be born. And the same God who did this, arranged all of this, arranges the salvation of his people, and has arranged even your sitting here in your pew today. What doctrinal instruction is here? Augustus Caesar acted as he pleased, He didn't say, oh, God is moving in my mind and heart to do this census. He did as He pleased, and yet He did in accordance with absolute predestination. How many things seem to overwhelm us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But my friends, these things are not by chance. What did Joseph and Mary know of God's decree? They didn't know what God was doing, precisely how He was bringing about the fulfillment of His his word. They knew that he governed. They knew that all things must concur in his governance, but they didn't understand the details. What do you know? You don't know precisely what God is doing in your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but this we may know in things great and in things small, God reigns. What a God we serve! Go, take a census, and God is in it, because God is God. You know, the old Puritan John Flavel said, providence is like Hebrew, you have to read it backward. How many times have you gone through circumstances and you have said, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. He brings you through the hardship, you look back and you can say, oh, now I see, now I understand. Now I see what you were doing in my life. And what will it be like in heaven when God undoubtedly will give to us a full understanding of what He has been doing, a satisfying understanding of each heart, of the greatness and glory of His providential care and guidance of His people. Listen, John Calvin said, gratitude of mind for the favorable outcome of things, patience in adversity, and also incredible freedom from worry about the future all necessarily flow from this knowledge of God's providence. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate of all miseries. The highest blessedness lies in the knowledge of it. Frankly, I do not see how a Christian reading his Bible can distance himself from this truth that God governs his world down to the minutia. Nothing is so benumbing as despair. Nothing is so stupefying and paralyzing as despair. But no Christian need despair because God rules His world. Long before there was a sinner, there was a Savior. Long before you began with Christ, He began with you. Providence brought Christ to you and brought you to Christ. And the antidote to despair is the knowledge of God's providence. And this is a major theme of Christmas. Do you remember Jonathan Edwards' great illustration about the providence of God? It's about the large and long river. Listen to Edwards. God's providence may not unfitly be compared to a large and long river, having innumerable branches beginning in different regions and at a different distance one from another, and all conspiring to one common issue. After their very diverse and apparent contrary courses they all collect together, the nearer they come to their common end and at length discharge themselves at one mouth in the same ocean. Now that's the world, that's God's governance. He has this stream of providence and all of these various tributaries that will disgorge themselves into the vast ocean of God's fulfilled purpose in due time. Edwards then says, The different streams of this river are apt to appear like mere confusion to us because of our limited sight, whereby we cannot see the whole at once. A man who sees but one or two streams at a time cannot tell what their course tends to. Their course seems very crooked and different streams seem to run for a while different and contrary ways. And if we view things at a distance, there seem to be innumerable obstacles and impediments in the way, as rocks and mountains and the like, to hinder their ever uniting and coming to the ocean. But yet, if we trace them, they all unite at last. They all come to the same issue, disgorging themselves into the one same ocean. And then he adds this, people of God, about the providence of God, not one of all the streams fails. Not one of all the streams fails. That's what God is doing in bringing the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. That is what He is doing in His world and that is what He is doing in your life. No reason to despair when we have a sovereign God. Now We've seen the place of Messiah's birth. We've seen the providence of Messiah's birth. But now let's look at the Messiah himself who was born. Micah 5.2 But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. We learn two things about this Messiah. First, we see that he is the ruler in Israel. Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. The believing remnant, how would they have heard this? They, in the midst of of what appeared to them to be utter chaos, would have read this passage, and they would have said to themselves, yes, Jerusalem will be raised. The professing church is an apostasy, but a ruler is coming through Bethlehem. They did not altogether understood what it meant. But by faith, they believed in Christ by believing the promise that God gave them. And what of us? Calvin puts it beautifully. He points out that Christ's birth in hard times and in insignificant places provides an image of the condition of the entire church. And just as the Son was born in Bethlehem, a town of insignificance, so the Lord will rescue His church whenever events become confused and chaotic and appear destined for ruin. So he rules. That's what the text says. He who would come would be ruler in Israel. How then does he rule? Listen to the beauty of the Westminster larger catechism when it puts it this way, Christ executeth the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself and giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, in bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and their good, and also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God, And obey not the gospel. That is what it means that he is the ruler in Israel. This ruler, you know, there's someone's heart over whom he wishes to reign this morning. Over whom he is determined to rule today. Some heart perhaps that has yet to yield to him and yet he will have you. Because he is the sovereign king. Is that person you? Is that heart your heart? Is that proud, rebellious heart your heart over whom he will reign? But notice also that he is the eternal God. The end of verse 2 of Micah 5, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Whose goings forth have been from everlasting, as the authorized version well translates it. Now, had we time to look at other passages, I could show you that what is meant here is eternality. What does it mean? What happened at Bethlehem? What happened at Bethlehem? The infinite became finite. The eternal, subject to time. The immortal became mortal. God became man. What does Christmas mean? The eternal God come in the flesh. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assuming human nature in order that he could redeem us, humans in our fallenness. So I ask you do you fear that his cross will not save you because your sin is too deep? Have you heard the text? His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He is the eternal God, become man who died on a cross. Do you think that you can stretch your sin greater than His eternality? Can you stretch your sin greater than His infinity? Can you stretch your sin greater than the completely valuable and altogether sufficient sacrifice that this child, when grown up, offered on a cross for sin? Do you fear that his love will not last? Have you not heard the text? Whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. He is the eternal God. He is eternal, not a chameleon who changes. Do you fear that maybe you just won't make it? The Christian life is just too hard. Maybe you're going to fall away. I ask you, did not Christ the eternal Son "...sign the covenant of redemption in eternity? Did He not agree to pay for you with His infinitely valuable blood? Is He not your surety, who is God Himself become man? Conclude then, He will eternally keep His people. My name from the palms of His hands eternity cannot erase. Impressed on His heart it remains in marks of indelible grace." Listen, listen, God does not change with time. He has always been. He will not expire when time ends. He will always be. There is no change in the eternal God. He remains the same. This is the God who assumed human nature. Your sins can be removed because His eternal nature can answer to our offenses against God who is eternal. And believer, He represents you before the eternal God with the infinite value of His blood of the everlasting covenant. The eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. And so you see the terrible cost. That in order that we might be redeemed, it required that the eternal Son of God be united inconfusedly, inseparably, unchangeably to our human nature. But do you also not see in that great condescension His everlasting love? How great is that love? It is love that took Him to the cross to bear our sins. And what did that love accomplish? Come to the end of the book of Micah, and you will see. For we read in verses 18 and 19, even in prophecy beforehand, this promise. The last chapter, 7 verses 18 and 19, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That is what this child has done, born in Bethlehem of Judea. But I have something else that I want to add, a very important thing for you to see. Something, frankly, from this text that I've never mentioned before. I want you to see God's glory in Messiah's birth. Have you ever noticed this? look at Micah 5:2 again. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall he come forth for me. From you shall he come forth for me." Who's speaking these words? Who's speaking these words? God is speaking these words through his prophet. When it says, for me, to whom does it refer? It refers to God. What does he mean? That's very striking, that the child would be born in Bethlehem. God says, for me. What is the significance of this? It's agreeable to the plan and purpose of God, His plan to save us from before ever the world was. It is in order that He might do the Father's will and work by fulfilling the law to perfection. It is so that Christ might come as a sacrifice for sin, glorifying all of God's perfections, satisfying justice and savingly in almighty love redeeming us. And then when we read in verse 3, Therefore, he shall give him up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. You see, he says, during this intertestamental period, it is as if God has given up his people. He hasn't given them up, but it is as if he has given up his people. It seems as if God is not at work to save his people. But then he brings the child into the world. God in control. Trouble, trials, calamities, God in control. Roman armies occupying Palestine, the raising up of Augustus Caesar. Why? For me, he says. My friends, when Jesus Christ came into the world to die for sinners, it was to save you from your sin. But there is a higher, more ultimate goal than that. He came, He was born, He obeyed the law, He paid the price for the glory of His Father. For the glory of God. The angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom His favor rests. For me, He says, for my glory, my Son assumes human nature. To be gospel, it must bring all glory to God, and man can take no credit for it whatsoever. You are saved because God determined to send His Son into His world for His own glory. You are saved because God is glorifying Himself in the salvation of sinners. You are saved because God sent His Son to Bethlehem and then to Calvary's hill for His own glory so that you and I might sing. The glory, Lord, from first to last is due to Thee alone. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob Thee of Thy crown. Our glorious surety undertook to satisfy for man. And grace was given us in Him before the world began, so that we might sing with the angels, Glory to God in the highest. It was for me that the child was born in Bethlehem because God is worthy. Is worthy. Now I ask on this Sunday before Christmas, is there someone here? who this Christmas is being drawn by God's Spirit to the Savior, who will say, by faith I bring my wretched heart to you. Save me from sin for Christ's sake. Save me for the glory of God. Will you lie low before him? Will you see that our problem is self-exaltation and that you and I are dependent on God for all good and that redemption is God's plan to restore us to offering Him praise and the glory that is due unto His name. Have you in your heart robbed Him of His crown? Have you in your heart robbed God of His glory? Do you now see that the whole point of Christmas is God's plan, to use the words of Edwards, that God should appear full and man in himself empty, that God should appear all and humanity nothing? Will you lie in the dust before Him? Will you now lay down the weapons of your warfare? Will you believe in Christ? Will you repent of your rebellion against Him? Do not wait for some mystical experience. Believe in Christ and find assurance of the forgiveness of sins by the gospel that is read and preached this morning. The gospel that Paul says is the glorious gospel because it is altogether a gospel about the glory of God. Trust in Christ. God become man who went to a cross and died efficaciously for sinners. He can save to the uttermost all that come to God by Him. And God's people said, Amen.